The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. Now, U.S. and Israeli officials have said a deal to free some of the hostages is edging closer. Uh, the news follows days of continued fighting in Gaza, with the Hamas-run health ministry accusing Israeli forces of putting thousands of civilians in the circle of death as a result of their targeting of hospitals. Now, joining me is Lila Milana Allen, special correspondent for PBS NewsR. Lila, good morning and welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, Can you give us the the state of play when it comes to a deal on hostages? Because we're hearing both from Israeli sources and from the United States that such a deal is probably going to happen under the auspices of Qatari influence. Well, that's exactly what would happen now. It's still not clear exactly what is going to be agreed. There have been suggestions from anywhere that all the hostages could be released, that a small number will be released. That's more likely, and exactly as happened previously, it will be negotiated by Qatari officials because the Hamas leadership does live in Qatar. And previously, there's been a lot of criticism of Qatar for hosting these officials. Now, of course, during this conflict, they've become extremely useful because they've been able to actually carry out these negotiations to allow hostages to be released. So we're still waiting for the exact details of what this will entail and whether it will just be a release in exchange for a ceasefire or whether there will be any Palestinian prisoners freed, which is originally what Hamas was demanding. Now, there are uh, obviously women and children in Israeli custody. Uh, I mean, that could be a beginning that would be less controversial than releasing people from Hamas who would then presumably become fighters for the next round of hostilities. Well, that's indeed the case. I mean, there are women and children who are being held as hostages who would be the first to be released. And as we've seen, they have been releasing elderly women um, at the moment, and that would be the first people who would come out, and probably young children as well. In terms of prisoners, the breed of prisoners that Hamas will be looking to have released would be men of fighting age, because they are classed as political prisoners uh, for Palestinian factions, and so that's really who they'd be fighting for. And of course, we have seen previously that when these prisoner releases do happen, very often they go on to be leadership of the Palestinian factions, which is exactly what happened with the original leaders of Hamas and the current leaders of Hamas were released in a prisoner swap. Now, what are people making of the release of footage by the Israelis showing a long tunnel, 55 metres long, 10 metres deep, underneath Al-Shifa Hospital? Are they claiming this is proof positive that the hospital was effectively being used as a human shield to prevent their activities being targeted? So this is the big question, the big focus now. I went into Gaza with the IDF last week, as have several other journalists. They've been extremely cagey about showing anything about these tunnels. Now, the existence of the tunnels is not in question. The tunnels have been shown to many journalists before this current conflict began, both by uh, Hamas and also by the Israelis on the side where they've managed to shut some down. Currently during this conflict, nobody has seen inside the tunnels. What's in question is how many there are and how deep they are and where they are. Now, in terms of the hospital, initially they got 
got into Al Shifa and they were just showing a few weapons they'd found, not really much else. They showed what they said was an opening for a tunnel shaft, and then several people looked at it, experts looked at it, and said that's actually likely just to be an elevator. Uh, now they have released this video of a tunnel shaft underneath, but the video does appear to have been edited. It does appear that at the beginning a drone is going down some sort of shaft, and then there's a very clear edit point where suddenly we're in a tunnel underground and it's no longer a drone but a human being moving. So there are a lot of questions over that video, how it was created. Still no journalists have been allowed inside that tunnel. They've, a few have been allowed to see the opening to it because the Israelis say it's too difficult to enter. And the other issue, just in case there are still active fighters or explosives inside, and the other issue is that whether or not there is one tunnel here, what the Israel Defense Forces said, their justification for going into a hospital, for besieging a hospital, which is illegal under humanitarian law, was that there is a command and control center, the main command and control center for Hamas underneath this hospital. Nothing they've proven so far, including whether or not this tunnel, if it is true that this tunnel is there, that still does not rank up to those claims. And so many people are saying this simply is not what they said was there and why they have to go into Al-Shifa. Yeah. Now, the, the focus has moved to the south, and even a former Israeli president, Ehud Olmert, was saying um, that that is always where they believed uh, the Hamas control centre was, not, in fact, under Al-Shifa Hospital. Why the focus on Al-Shifa if people as eminent as him uh, seem to think they were chasing down the wrong rabbit hole, if you like? There have always been differing opinions on this, but the vast majority of leadership has maintained that they think the command and control center is underneath Al-Shifa Hospital. One of the reasons for that is that the Israelis themselves in the 80s built a bunker underneath the hospital, a shelter, as they do with many of their hospitals, while Israel was still inside because it's less than 20 years since Israel pulled out of Gaza. Now, there's been a lot of shifting movement on what the Israelis say they're going to do in Gaza. Originally, it was these small ground incursions. Then it was surrounding Gaza City. Now it's taking Gaza City. Now they've looked through Al-Shifa Hospital. Now they're starting to say that they'll push south. Of course, for weeks, they've been sending hundreds of thousands of civilians south and saying that that's where it's safe. So if they're now going to expand that operation south, which is what they're saying they're going to do, that's another huge humanitarian concern. We're already seeing more than 13,000 Palestinians killed during this conflict. If they're now going to expand their ground operations into the area where people have been have been fleeing for safety, even though they're still being hit by aerial bombardments, that's another huge calculation on their part and on the part of the international community about what can be done to help these civilians. Leila Milana Allen, special correspondent for PBS NewsHour. Thank you very much for joining us. Now, with me in uh, Cork is Dr. Lawrence Davis, lecturer in the Department of Government and Politics at University College Cork. Uh, Lawrence, good morning and welcome. Good morning. Thank you. Now, uh, things appear to be moving at the moment in, in terms of release of hostages. And you wonder what would that mean? I mean, would it mean that the Israelis having released all those held captive by Hamas, would then intensify their efforts, or would this be seen as some sort of conciliatory gesture that would stay the Israeli hand? Well, I think you you see nuancing over language. So some in the United States, for example, in the U.S. government have used the, the language of humanitarian pauses as opposed to ceasefire. ceasefire. Um, and this represents a, a sort of a political or ideological divide as to precisely the question that, that, that you've asked there. So what will come after 
at those pauses. I think if you look at um, public opinion here in Ireland, here in Cork, for example, uh, there was a, a demonstration yesterday in Cork City Centre. Over a thousand people were demonstrating. And what you heard at that demonstration is a call for a ceasefire. And I think that's what you're hearing more from Ireland rather than the language of a, of a, of a pause, a humanitarian pause. Um, the tactic of the Biden administration before October the 7th um, was, as I think a, a man called Franklin Foer wrote in his book, The Last Politician, that Biden devised a strategy at, to smother Netanyahu with love, hug Bibi tight. The idea being that you show absolutely unequivocal support uh, for Bibi in order to try and uh, moderate him. You know, if he feels secure that the United States has his back, that he might not be as aggressive in terms of settlements and and also the right wing colleagues he has in his cabinet. It's gone beyond that now. Hugging BB tight is not the way to go. Well, I think your characterization is probably accurate there. But in terms of its success, it's that strategy has not proven to be successful, and not only in the present moment. It hasn't proven successful in the past. And I think it's it's in part the nature of the government in Israel. Um, it's in part the nature of the history, the longer history of, uh, of, of Zionism. Um, so if you have, if this is the ideological mindset, that it's, you know, the... Uh, a settler colonial mindset, so taking as much land as possible um, for a homeland for the Jewish Jewish people. Where are the Palestinians left in that equation? Yeah. So that's that's I think it's you know the from from the U.S. perspective, right? There there some in the U.S. administration have been trying to exercise or have called on the Biden administration to exercise a moderating influence on the Israeli government. Biden himself, by the way, I think has very different views, and I'd be happy to talk about yeah. those. What does he feel? Well, this is very interesting to, to me. Um, the, so I, I used to work many years ago in the, as a legislative aide in the, in, in the U.S. Senate. This was when Biden was a very prominent Democratic senator. He later went on to become chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee. Biden has throughout his career been a very, very, um, uh, I think one of the, he's known as one of the stronger supporters of Israel. Um, and that, that was true throughout his 36 years in the U.S. Senate. It's also true, and this hasn't been much remarked upon in, in the Irish media at, at any rate, according to um, op Open Secrets, that um, Biden in his his 36 year career in the Senate was not only the number one recipient of um, of uh, financial support from pro-Israel lobby groups like APEC, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, um, but also probably at least as as far as the st statistics that we have access to, probably the largest recipient of such aid in the history of the chamber. So he has, I think, very different views from some, for example, in the State Department. You're probably familiar with, um, you know, the sort of uprest or unease yeah. of many in the State Department over this almost blank check for uh, for Israel. Yeah, and, and Blinken, I think, echoed the sentiments uh, of our own Taoiseach about, you know, not going for revenge. 
I mean, a military operation is one thing, but revenge is, is something else entirely. This goes back so far, though. Uh, I mean, the idea of a Palestine, there was a Palestine, and Jew, Christian, Arab lived, uh, you know, in varying degrees of population happily together. But then the Zionist movement wanted a homeland for Jews. I believe Uganda was once considered as a potential Israel. It, it was, yes. So it's very interesting. If, if one goes right, and I'm glad you ask about this, because one of the things that I find, and of course, you know, rightly, it's important to focus on present, ev- present events. I, I don't deny that. But I think it's also very, very important to understand the history of this conflict, because if one doesn't understand the history, and this is true of most conflicts, it's very hard to find a, a, a peaceful solution. It's also a product, I think, of what one might call settler time, this intense focus on the present as an isolated island disconnected from past and future. So um, if we go back to the late 19th century, so this is a very different situation. This is the Ottoman Empire from, say, 1519 to end of World War I. And we're seeing a lot of changes at the end of the 19th century. And this is the growth of well, the, an import, really, from Europe of modern nation-states um, in the region. Um, and Zionism arises as, a, as an ideology, as a political movement, at the end of the 19th century, as, as, as you point out. Um, and it is, an, it's in part, it's an ideology that arises in response to centuries of oppression, yeah. of Jewish people, the Dreyfus this is, affair. And this is prior, of course, to the, the Holocaust, where it, yes. it, it reached its acme. But in the meantime, you, you have the end of the Ottoman Empire, you have this Palestine, which, uh, you know, the, the, all the great powers divided everything up between themselves, and Britain got this particular uh, place, it was part of its mandate, and that mandate ran until it became too hot for the British to hold with the Zionist movement, and they said... We're out of here. And the creation of the modern Israeli state was actually drawn up by the United Nations. Yes, and interestingly, um, the, the partition plan of, of 1947 didn't, it w- was drawn up without the participation of the, the native indigenous inhabitants. Um, so um, that's, that's very important in terms but of... But you think, listening to the United Nations today, that they'd no hand or act or part, the way they are kind of judgmental about the whole situation, and yet the genesis of it was in their own hands. Mm. Now, different personnel, different, the United Nations was smaller, and so on and so forth. But still, it, it, it is a creature of their creation. Well, yes. And, and I think also, and it's interesting to me, I mean, we, and I say we here in Europe, bear a large share of responsibility for what is happening right now in, uh, in, in, mm. in Palestine. Um, in the sense that, um, you know, this is really, Zionism was developed as a political movement. It's a, a settler colonial movement um, in Europe. Um, this is where Zionism was developed in response, as I say, to, you know, terrible persecutions of Jewish people. But the fundamental idea behind Zionism, again, developed in Europe, was that these problems of Europe would, in a sense, and that we see this in the, the, the work of the Christian Zionists, for example, be exported to this land where, in fact, there was a people living. 
And yeah. that's the fundamental, that's and the that's nub of the, the problem. Well, you can uh, start the clock wherever you like. I mean, the Native Americans, if they try to have the right to return to the lands that they owned before the Pilgrim Fathers arrived with uh, all the European baggage on the uh, North American continent, in Ireland, the planters arrive from uh, from Britain to plant the Irish landscape and, you know, to hell or to Connacht, said Cromwell. You know, you have to decide where you actually start the clock. It's very interesting stuff. There's a lot more to it. But Lawrence Davis, Dr. Lawrence Davis, lecturer in the Department of Government and Politics at University College Cork. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9 a.m. on News Talk.